Hello, and welcome to the Final Girls Podcast, where we watch horror films, but we also read horror books. This is Anna, co-founder of the Final Girls Collective and your podcast host. If you're new to the show or you've somehow found it for book talk or book Twitter, this podcast takes a horror trope and explores it in depth through discussions with special guests. We've done witches, vampires, female monsters, and are currently wrapping up our teen horror season. So if this is your first time listening, you should know I'm also a massive book nerd. And on occasion on this podcast, we do what I've called the Bloody Book Club. We're interviewing some of the women who are writing horror right now. It's a sporadic series, very much based around availability and a genuine love of horror fiction. I've interviewed authors Emily M. Danforth and Katrina Ward, and this time around, I'm so pleased to have spoken to Chelsea G. Summers, the author of the cannibal novel of the summer, A Certain Hunger. I knew I had to read this book the moment I saw a New York Times piece called Why Can Women Be Serial Killers Too? A Certain Hunger, which has just been released in the UK by Favour this very month, follows a very smart, very accomplished food critic who is as voracious about food as she is about men. That is, having sex with them and also, on occasion, killing and eating them. Dorothy Daniels is an anti-heroine and murderess for the ages. As a woman psychopath, the white tiger of human psychological deviance, she says, I am a wonder and I relish your awe. It is a demonically funny book, told from the point of view of this female psychopath who has never been shy about indulging her exquisite tastes. To quote Lady Gaga, I don't believe in the glorification of murder. I do believe in the empowerment of women. I know listeners of The Final Girls will enjoy this one as much as I did, so I can't recommend it highly enough. And with all that said, please enjoy my conversation with author Chelsea G. Summers. Chelsea, thank you so much for giving up a little bit of your time to talk to me. I've I've been a big fan of your book and scoured quite a few bookshops trying to find it here in the UK before I finally relented and ordered it online. Well, thanks so much for having me. Um, so I'm. We're going to talk mostly about your novel, A Certain Hunger. But before we get into the book itself, I wanted to ask you a little bit about yourself and your own relationship to horror, either um, in book form or in film form. Yeah, so I don't actually watch a lot of horror, um, primarily because I have never enjoyed stories that are animated by the bodies of dead women. Um, so I do love Jennifer's body, which is not. Um, I love Raw, which is, you know, not so much. Um, I love vampire stuff in general, just because it's, you know, sexy and sleek and, uh, and melancholic. Um, most of the, most of the horror books I've read were based in my scholarly stuff which was 18th century 
So, you know, like Matthew Lewis's The Monk is huge in my mind and I've written on it a couple of times. I wrote on um, Bram Stoker's Dracula a couple of times. I wrote on Carmilla, like, um, but then, you know, because I grew up in the, in the 70s and 80s, I also read my way through the earlier Stephen King oeuvre and uh, have that basis as well. But I'm not a huge horror person. Um, I like aspects of it. Mm -hmm. I like the body issue. I like the fact that it deals with grief, um, which at least in American culture is especially specifically white American culture is something that we're very, very bad at. Uh, I do watch a lot of horror TV, not so much movies. Mm -hmm. Drinking. So if can you talk a little bit about then how why you decided to actually write a horror novel i didn't oh yeah i had no idea that i wrote a horror novel mm -hmm. until it got embraced by horror readers and then i was like oh okay that makes a lot of sense um in my mind as i was writing a certain hunger I saw it as a satire, I saw it as a novelistic memoir, I saw it as kind of an anti-true crime book. Um, I saw it as a story of friendship, um, but I never understood it as a horror book. And now that, you know, people have pointed out the fact that it is horror. I'm like, oh yeah, no, I totally, I get that. I just, I never really thought of um, American Psycho as horror. Mm -hmm. And I now can understand why it would be considered horror because there's blood and guts and, you know, and murderiness and all of that. But when I think of horror, I think of, you know, vampires, I think of The Shining, I think of, zombies i think of you know people following you and trying to kill you in the dark um which of course my protagonist does but i guess i just completely blanked out and i'm not alone in this my agent mm -hmm. didn't see it as horror my first editor at uh at audible didn't understand it as horror and my editor at unnamed didn't get it as horror and i might add Faber, who is publishing it in the UK, mm. my editor there was like, really? It's horror? I'm like, yeah, it's horror, apparently. What it is is feminist body horror. I had no idea. <laughs> I mean, is that is that a label that you have embraced since people, you yeah, know, yeah. audiences and readers have I mean, labeled it a feminist body horror? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, you know, the author is dead as far as I'm concerned. I'm D-E-D, you -E -D, killed me. It's cool. Like, <laughs> I, I truly... I. I knew that I was writing something that was not easily categorizable. Um, the having people put it within the category of feminist body horror, and there's a lot that I, you know, like I, I just fit, recently finished um, Rachel Yoder's Night Bitch, yes. which is feminist body horror, and I freaking love that book with an extra flamey white hot burning passion i've got it on my um, nightstand right now it's so it's so bloody good i can't even wrap my head around it i can't even be mad at how good it is <laughs> um you know and I, I, similarly like i love angela carter mm -hmm. and the bloody chamber was a huge um, and also uh, Nice at the Circus, which is not horror, um, you know, was a huge inspiration for me in writing in writing my book. Um, 
uh, Carmen Maria Machado's Her Body and Other Parties. You know, I, I deeply, profoundly, achingly love. Um, so now that it's kind of, my book has been embraced by feminist body horror people, or that's the tag that is frequently attached to it on Goodreads. I'm totally cool with it because I can see it. It's just, it was never ever in my mind as I was writing it. So can you, can you elaborate a little bit of what was on your mind when you started writing it? Kind of if you weren't um, deliberately or knowingly kind of going in the horror direction, you've mentioned, you know, uh, writing it as a novelistic memoir or as an anti-true crime book or as a satire mm -hmm. kind of what, how did it feel like when it's when you were well, in the writing process? Yeah, so I really wrote it because I was motivated by spite. Um, I had recently been dumped by a really beautiful and very stupid Italian man. And um, I had been living in Italy and I took the summer back in New York and then I was like, all right, I'm going back to Italy on my own terms. And I found myself in this 17th century villa. I was supposed to be there with a friend. She had fallen in love with this winemaker up in Piemonte. I was in, um, in Montalcino in Tuscany. And I'm alone in this villa that's at the end of a dirt road. The only thing that keeps me warm in the middle of fall into winter is this tiny wood stove that's like literally the size of a personal pan pizza. So I was incredibly angry and sad. And, uh, and I was like in my mid forties and I really wanted to express the rage that I felt about being dumped not just this time, but repeatedly throughout the course of my life. And, um, and I'd had this image of, you know, my ex-boyfriend being impaled on rebar. And I, that was the very first scene I wrote. And uh, then I ended up writing the rest of the book. And really what motivated me was wanting to see a book with a narrator who inhabited the emotional world that I was in, mm -hmm. which was an aging woman who felt frustrated in her career, who felt, you know, like uh, my voice was not being heard, um, who felt like bereft about the state of my love life and uh, who felt, you know, more than a little bit murderous. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, writing it, like I really went in, you know, once I found, once I nailed the voice, mm -hmm. I just, you know, like I wrote a few chapters and it sat for a really long time. Then I edited my friend Molly Crabapple's um, memoir in 2014. Uh, at the end of April, I decided, okay, I will give myself six months to finish my novel. That's what I'm going to do for the next six months. Mm -hmm. That's my goal. And so I did. And then it was a really long, rocky uh, road to getting it published. And I'm definitely going to ask about that. But I wanted to talk about the voice and, and mm -hmm. Dorothy specifically. Kind of how, how did she come into focus for you because she does have from the very first opening paragraph and until the very end such a specific deliberate decisive voice and and one that it's I mean I, I find spite a great motivator for a lot of things but 
I would definitely not did not read her as angry at all while I was reading the novel. Mm-hmm. I found her kind of quite um not aspirational, of course, but kind of extremely confident and appealing, so appealing because of that confidence and that kind of snobbery that she has throughout her voice. I found it fascinating and I wanted to keep reading her because even though I know that she would probably would have murdered me or at least very much judged my life choices, I still wanted to hear more from her. So it's such a a specific tone of voice. Can you talk a little bit about how you you found her? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, like... I, from the very beginning, I saw the book as kind of a love child between Eat, Pray, Love and American Psycho. Um, that, uh, you know, I, I didn't make it all the way through Eat, Pray, Love. I made it through Eat and Pray. And then once she got to love, I was like, all right, I'm tapping out. <laughs> um, I read American Psycho the summer before I started work, writing my book. I'd re- Of course, I read it you know, when it came out, but I reread it the summer before. And then I was like, all right, I'm good. I don't need to look at it again. So I kind of let those two works simmer Mm -hmm. together. Um, And I read a bunch of food writing and specifically Gail Green's memoir. Uh, I read like the first three chapters and I latched onto that chatty, revealing kind of loquacious voice and once I had that I was like all right and I'm good I'm done um and it was really the voice that kind of kept me going it it was a very cathartic experience writing the book I got to exercise a lot of demons I got to give in to a lot of the the murderous rage that I had um, I basically got to live my life, you know, my my inner psychopathic life um, without any consequences, but, you know, eventually getting paid for it. So that's cool. <laughs> and can we talk a little bit about the choice of making her a serial killer? And mm-hmm. and why do you think the figure of the serial killer, which is such a, a potent and recurring figure, both in kind of the more documentary um true crime genre but also in fiction uh both tv and and film and books why is it so appealing to us do you think kind of and why why make dorothy a a serial killer well it would have been a short story if she just killed one guy but um (laughs) (laughs) wouldn't even been a novella really uh so uh, you know i had been like many people in the mid 2000s 2010s you know like i was what i was consuming a lot of true crime um my favorite thing was snapped which i don't know if they if you have it in the uk so it's on oxygen or it was on oxygen which is television for women like that is their tagline and snapped is the you know it's a true crime story about women who kill or mm-hmm. women who get uh charged with killing maybe they're not maybe they're not guilty um and at the same time, like I was watching uh, Hannibal, which, you know, Brian Fuller, like bow down, Absolutely. kiss the hem of his garments. Like, it's just so great. Um, but I felt really cranky. And I always have from the very first time I read the Thomas Harris books, which again, were when they came out. Um, 
a, that Hannibal was always so good at everything, mm-hmm. you know, and of course, if it's Mads Mikkelsen who can actually cook and actually dance and actually speak multiple languages and, you know, whips out a bottle of vodka in the middle of an interview, um, like he's, he's just so perfect. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to write a character who wasn't perfect, who did make mistakes, who did kind of run counter to our expectations of the serial killer. And one of those big expectations and something I take on very much, you know, headlong in the book is that it's going to be a man. Um, And our, I, as a feminist, I have an issue with the Victorian concept of the fairer sex. I have an issue with the way that the ways that women are perceived to be somehow at once less trustworthy and more ethical or more moral or less violent or something. And I think that there is a lot of room for exploration of what those expectations and views say about our values and our gendered values in the culture. So a great deal of the reason why I wrote A Certain Hunger was to unpack um, some of those ideas and thoughts in my own head and then, you know, hopefully in other people's as well. I mean, that gives me... It, it, I'm just aggressively nodding here because I've just written an entire book about that very about those very ideas. Um, but I'm curious, kind of, why do you think it's still? Um, why do you think seeing or reading female serial killers, female murderers um, in fiction, is still so rare and still seemingly so shocking? I was reading a few of the reviews of a certain hunger. Um, about kind of how how shocked people were to read about a woman graphically and very unapologetically kill and and delight in killing men or killing in general. Why do you think it's still so? Um, well, it's, people are taking it back. It's the promising young woman thing, you know. It's the it's the threat of upending not merely individual men's lives but the social order, you know, where then the social order is that women don't do these things. And if they do, they feel really bad about it. Um, And I think that history shows that women do do these things and they don't necessarily feel bad about it. And I don't think that, you know, murder or murderous impulses or murderous rage even even if it's not acted upon is a gendered uh construct um it's not a gendered emotion and it shouldn't be and i feel that one of the wonderful things about bloody fiction, whether that's crime fiction or horror fiction or something that defies genre in any kind of neat way, is that it allows you, regardless of where you are on the gender spectrum, gender ball, you know, um, to experience what are otherwise discomforting and uncomfortable emotions. 
And the, the interest in specifically true crime by specifically women is a very interesting and complex thing. Um, and I suspect, although I haven't done much work in it, the interest that women have and the response that women have to horror is also a really complicated and interesting thing. Because the idea has always been, all right, you know, men like horror because men can identify with the hunting, praying, and masculine energy of the killer and women don't like it, but women do like it and women mm -hmm. do make it and women do spend money on it and women think about it and women consume it. And, you know, especially if you're looking at books, we freaking buy the most of it. Um, and I think it's, it's because just, you know, like, I'm not, I'm not identifying with the women who are killed and sliced open. I am identifying with, if not the final girl, mm -hmm. then I am identifying with the rage that goes into, or whatever the murderous impulse is, that goes into, you know, the, that, into the serial killer. Mm -hmm. I can identify with a serial killer much more easily than I can identify with a victim because I am not a victim. Mm -hmm. And do you think there is, um, picking up on that note, do you think there's still a certain... Sorry, I didn't mean to get all polemical. <laughs> no, I, I actually, I completely wholeheartedly agree with you. I mean, that's the whole, the whole basis of this entire podcast, this collective, this project was because it was always looked upon uh, until quite recently when there's there's been a mushrooming of initiatives, mm -hmm. festivals, blogs, zines, podcasts, what have you, made made essentially around centering women's reactions to horror fiction in all of its myriad different forms. And I've always just, uh, perhaps this is too simplistic, but I've always just said that horror was invented by a teenage girl, which it was by Mary Shelley. So we can go yeah. back, way back to that. <laughs> and the fact that there's still people uh, that are trying to discredit her as the author of Frankenstein, I mean, does not surprise me, unfortunately, but still is baffling. But I think it's kind of inherently political because we continue having to prove the fact that we 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 can identify and we can can feel seen and can just enjoy horror fiction or horror narratives without having to pass judgment on them or on the people making them or necessarily yeah. identify with as you mentioned at the very uh, start of our chat kind of with the uh, with the with the dead bodies of women who are usually kind of the inciting incidents of a lot of these stories for better or worse yeah. but i'm wondering kind of do you think there is still there is a particularly female angle that you wanted to take. And I know you, we've kind of talked a little bit about feminist body horror as your book has been tagged retroactively. Do you think there's kind of a, a distinctive female element that you wanted to bring to it precisely because the writing is so explicit about bodies, about the killing, about the consumption of them, and about the sex as well? Yeah. Uh, well, honestly, it was about menopause. Fair. You know, like I, I'm if I if I have to look over my shoulder mm -hmm. now and see what the book is about, it's about menopause um, and it's about moving from a time of visible fecundity mm -hmm. to a time of cloistered uh, withering and um, my 
and I, and I think like, it's not mine alone, but you know, my anger at, at not at being postmenopausal. I'm delighted to be postmenopausal. Like, <laughs> it's awesome. Like no cooling. It's great. No problems. Totally happy. Would do it again. I give it 11 out of 10, <laughs> two thumbs up. Um, but, uh, but you know, the, the, it's more about the cultural views mm -hmm. and the expectations of women as they slide into, you know, sixties, seventies and beyond. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, like not wanting to go quietly into that good night and, and demanding to be seen and demanding to be heard. Um, so really the, that, that was as much as my animated, you know, like my, what was in my mind was I'm, I'm angry at men. Mm -hmm. I'm angry at relationships ending. I'm angry at all of this stuff. I may get in my career. It, when I look at it now, I say, no, it's, it's really about menopause. That's incredible. Yeah. And and it's also about uh, women being remembered. Like I was I was mm -hmm. rereading some of the bits that I had underlined in the book and kind of at the at the very end it's about Dorothy not letting anyone forget what she did, who she was. Right. Yeah, well I think, you know, I mean I think that the the twin um narratives of Dorothy and Emma, mm -hmm. Emma's her best friend in mm -hmm. sort of the moral center of the book. Um they're really stories of women creating their own lives, you know, and create making choices that serve their own artistic creations. And um, that's ultimately what it's about. What's been most surprising in the reception of the book, especially, honestly, since Anya Taylor-Joy put it on her Snapchat yes. story last, like, October, is, which was like, seriously god's old and new bless her it was just before the paperback came out in the u.s and it could not have been timed better mm -hmm. um is how how widely it's been um uh it's been accepted and and loved by you know 20 year old women um i did not see that coming mm. not at all did not imagine it in my wildest dreams. And it makes me so unbelievably happy to see that it's uh, it's something that's resonating, you know, with the youngs. Um, and yeah, that's really, that's the, that's the most surprising and coolest thing from, you know, my end of the couch. And you mentioned it a little bit before, but I wanted to ask you now about that journey from when you finished the novel in that six month period that you gave mm -hmm. yourself to actually getting it published and and kind of could you talk a little bit about how people were receiving it on the you know bef before it actually got put out yeah so it took me a couple of years to find an agent um i'd had an agent mm -hmm. i had an agent who was repping my nonfiction stuff and i showed her my novel and her first reaction was to flatten out the voice. And she did a line edit of like the first three chapters where she basically made it as monotone as possible. And uh, I got it and I was just like, so crushed, I was so crushed. And so I turned to a friend of mine who, you know, was short on cash. And I was like, look, here's a couple hundred dollars 
go through, make these edits because I can't do it. I feel like I'm killing, I feel like I'm killing my child. Like I cannot do this. I just, but I do want to see what it looks like because maybe, maybe the agent is right. And so she did. And, um, and I get the manuscript back and I'm like, okay, I hate it. It's like, thanks. I hate it. You know? And I was so disheartened that it sat for a year mm -hmm. um, before I actually ended up finding somebody who was my original agent, Jen Udden, and I found her on Twitter. And it took Jen about two years to sell it to Audible. Um, during that time, I think we had 18, 20 rejections. Uh, some of them were along the lines of, and I'm not kidding. I quote here, she's too good at writing gore. What? It's like, are you familiar with the work of, I don't know, Chuck Palahniuk? Like, you know, are you familiar with American Psycho, which has had a movie, a play and a musical written about it and has never been out of print since the early 80s when it came out? Like, are you, are you effing kidding me? Um, yeah, I got a lot of, I got a lot of, uh, rejections that were just like, I can't, it's just, it makes me feel all oogie inside is what it came down to. So we finally sold it to Audible and it was an Audible original for a year. And I thought, okay, great. At this point, who is like, somebody's going to buy it because it's already been published in one format. Mm -hmm. So yay. Now another 10, 15 rejections. I think, you know, like, I think we got somewhere around in the neighborhood of like 30 rejections mm -hmm. in total before, um, unnamed bought it and, uh, and put it out as a hardback, uh, whereupon it got multiple rave reviews and, you know, it's been currently I it's in, coming out in five more languages with Amazing. two more in the waiting. Um, it got optioned. I am not, I don't like right now the option, the, oh, the you option don't have window to. is coming to, yeah, it's coming to a close. So I don't know what's mm -hmm. going to happen with that. Um, but yeah, so I've been really, really pleased mm -hmm. with the reception of it. And I feel really vindicated considering how many rejections this book got. Mm -hmm. And maybe it was that none of us understood that it was horror and we just weren't marketing it to the right editors. I, I have no clue. It's really hard for me to say. Uh, it was literally my first rodeo. It was mm -hmm. my debut novel. I've never had a book come out. So I don't have any experience to compare it to. And do you think that reaction, and I'm, I'm talking kind of about both the, the, the long period of rejections from editors, but also about this embrace of the book by, by audiences. Do you think that kind of reaction, very visceral, either, oh no, or yes, absolutely, reaction is because Dorothy's a, a killer, because she's a cannibal killer, because she's very sexually independent and empowered, or because she's also kind of a snob, but also has oh, all think, the ammunition yes. to be a snob? Oh, yes. All of it. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I, I really think that it it was... Uh, I think that the main reason is that she's a woman and she's a serial, you know, a cannibalistic serial killer. Mm. Like, I think that was the thing that people had the hardest time wrapping their heads around in terms of 
you know, publishing. And let's face it, publishing is driven by capitalism. Yeah. And it is a deeply, deeply conservative industry with no imagination. So until they see a thing selling, mm-hmm. they can't imagine that the new thing would sell. Um, so I'm not surprised. And also the book is a satire of the publishing industry. Mm-hmm. It really spares no punches about how, you know, how terrible publishing is. Um, so I think that those things together, I can understand why people had the reaction that they did, even though I think that the reaction that they did was really dumb and short-sighted. Um, but I also think that the reason why it's getting the reception that it has been getting is that it is, you know, it's about a woman who's a cannibalistic serial killer, you know, and gives zero fucks and, uh, and, you know, will not apologize to anybody ever about literally anything. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, the the weirdest the weirdest reactions to me are the ones where people are like eh, three stars it was fine I'm like really it was fine are you kidding me it was just fine like either love it or hate it like what is your problem yeah I mean maybe those are the true psychopaths who just don't react to <laughs> <laughs> to the gore. <laughs> There is, I did want to ask you about the central relationships that Dorothy has. And one of them I really, um, obviously the the main one is with Emma, but I was really surprised at the revelation of her kind of falling in love at one point in her mm-hmm. on her life with Alex and kind of then walking yeah. away from that love. Um, because in the entire kind of previous buildup of her character and the building of her character, she was unapologetically unfeeling about Mm -hmm. everyone else so can you talk a little bit about how those two relationships play into her character in the book yeah so uh, you know you know from the very beginning that dorothy is writing from prison Mm -hmm. uh and you see the crime that put her in prison and i made that choice because there is no reason for a serial killer to write a memoir unless they know that they are already caught because otherwise you're just writing a giant confession, mm-hmm. right? Um, so the so the the question for me became how to make it not a does she get caught, uh, but to make it, you know, why did she do it? Like, what is the big why? And I thought that one of the things that would make her want to make the choices that she did, which is to kill her ex-lovers and then eat them, um, was a feeling that I'd always had about relationships, which is that you're, you're in this relationship, you love this person, they're seeing sides of you that nobody else gets to see, you're profoundly and deeply intimate, you open yourself up in ways that are uncomfortable and vulnerable and uh, and a little and terrifying and then the relationship is over and you still have all of these feelings but that person is gone Mm -hmm. they're just gone from your life and so what do you do with them and you know for for solving the problem of Dorothy was like the question of like all right she 
wants to keep these men in her life in part because she's a major control freak but also because she doesn't want to age alone by herself um and the way to make that work for me was to have a love affair and i'll be honest i hate (laughs) rom-coms i can name two or three rom-coms that i like i like it happened one night i like uh forgetting sarah marshall and i like uh there's one more that i oh um it's the one with jessica williams it's kind of an anti-rom-com oh it's an indie the really recent one from a few years ago yes uh i know exactly which one you're talking about and the name now escapes me what is the name of that film oh the incredible jessica james that's it yeah yeah uh, and those, so those are the three rom-coms I like. Um, and so her relationship with Alex has all of the rom-com tropes. There's, you know, a forgotten relationship. There is a meet cute. There is, you know, the slow building of, of affection. There is a marriage proposal on top of the Empire State Building. You know, there are all of these things that feel like okay this is the end of you know dorothy Mm -hmm. as a cannibalistic serial killer but really it's the beginning of Mm -hmm. her as a cannibalistic serial killer because it is her leaving of alex and rejecting the self the person she would be had she married him that spurs her into um you know having it not just be that one time in italy that you know what Mm -hmm. stays the liver you eat that in Italy stays in Italy like she brings she brings the cannibalism into her current life mm-hmm. um as for Emma you know I I didn't go in writing the book expecting there to be a female best friend um but after I so okay just to back up a mm-hmm. little bit in my mind there are two basic kinds of fiction writers there are architects and there are explorers. Architects have a plan. They have a drawing. They know what the house is going to look like. They know who's going to be in it. They know where the furniture is going to be. They know how they're going to, you know, like where the staircases are. They know like what is going to happen throughout the course of the book. Explorers have no freaking idea. There's just a, you know, there's an America shaped continent. You're leaving Sweden, you're in a long boat and you're hoping maybe you kind of get there and find some, I don't know, food. Um, And I'm an explorer, especially in this book. So I had written the scene where Dorothy goes to college in Penniston, which is a thoroughly made up liberal arts school in Vermont. And, um, and she has a roommate and they hate each other. And uh, eventually she, you know, rediscovers her in Boston, like a few years after graduation. Um, And they become, they become unlikely best friends. And I didn't know that that was going to be part of the book. I didn't know what Emma's role was going to be in Dorothy's life. Mm -hmm. I didn't really have a vision for how it was going to be meaningful. I just knew from the very first scene that it was going to be a, a bigger relationship than what I'd anticipated. Mm-hmm. And because so much of 
about the book is about discovering and rejecting femininity um, and female, you know, and and about finding your way as a female identifying person mm-hmm. and about female friendships, um, even pre Emma, like it became important to me to have a female relationship, you know, with friends where, uh, you would see a side of Dorothy that you wouldn't see otherwise. And, and to wrap up our conversation, Chelsea, I just wanted to ask you, um, a slightly bigger question that relates to a lot of the things that are in the book and also that we've been talking about kind of where do you think or why do you think this idea of hunger or of appetite um comes into this i hesitate calling it a new wave but it has been something that i've been seeing a lot in the last few years in you know feminist body horror or feminist horror however you want to call it and it's in it's in the dna of dorothy as a character from her work mm-hmm. as a foot critic, from even her identity as a cannibal, from her murderous instincts as well, for her appetite for fine things for men, for travel, for living, but also in very literally, it's also in the title of the book. So can you talk a little bit about kind of how how do you think this idea of hunger fits into the feminist horror of it all? Yeah, so this was another thing that I didn't consciously think about at all as I was writing the book, I wasn't like, oh yeah, so this is actually about my messed up lifelong relationship with food and denying, you know, my own feelings of, of hunger and denying the, myself the things that I actually wanted to eat and denying myself like the, the you know, the eating as much as I wanted to or, or, you know, feeling guilty about eating the things that I did. Um, so it, 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 fiction, it comes from your brain, you know, like no matter what, you're going to be writing stuff that is like, hello, Dr. Freud, Dr. Freud, white courtesy telephone, please, you know, and women have to, at least, you know, culturally, women are expected to perform self-control and it's most visible in our self-control of appetite, like eating and disciplining your body in a way that doesn't take up too much space, that conforms to a a patriarchal, specifically white concept of beauty that, you know, shows that you have the ability to manage a family, um, you know, manage a family's finances, manage a family's eating, manage a family's pantry, all of that stuff is wrapped up together. Um, And when women have unruly appetites, it is considered, you know, like you get, women get disparaged for it. You know, you're you're a slut, you're a slag, you're a fat whore, you are, you know, you are whatever bundle of epithets people want to throw at you because you haven't maintained this tightrope walk of what is acceptable. And those kinds of constraints just scream out for horror. 
they scream out to be exploded in the most visceral, bloody, arterial spray kind of ways. Um, because it's not fair, you know? Ultimately, it's just not fucking fair that like a women, you know, and here I'm using women as like identifying mm -hmm. as woman, um, need or are expected to conform to this very limited uh, circumspect role in order to be culturally acceptable. And uh, it's dumb and it's unfair and men can eat as many freaking cheeseburgers as they want and nobody says, you know, boo to them. I mean, like, I remember when Dennis Franz's act ass was out on NYPD blue and was like everybody was like oh my god and, you know like and James Gandolfini what a sex symbol like really are you really are you kidding me that's a sex symbol and I'm expected to look like you know fill in the blank so yeah I think that um I think that rules and constraints create the possibility for and even the necessity for really sick bloody horror I think that's a wonderful note to end on. Chelsea, thank you so <laughs> much for for your time and for thank this conversation. You. And for anyone who's more curious about discovering more of your work, where can people find a certain hunger and more of your work online? Um, uh, yeah, I haven't really been writing a lot of nonfiction lately um, for a variety of reasons, mostly because, you know, I don't want to, but also I would want to, but it's hard to be paid enough mm -hmm. where it's like really worth my time, but I am working on a new book. Um, so A Certain Hunger is out in the US. It's coming out in the UK in this July. It'll be out in uh, Estonia and Russia at some point later this year. And it'll be out in Italy and in France in 2023. Um, and then hopefully as well, the Netherlands and uh, Germany. We're waiting on those deals. So yeah, and other than that, I'm on Twitter frequently. Amazing. And hopefully we'll get to see a, a screen adaptation of A Certain Hunger sometime soon. Yeah, that would be awesome. <laughs> thank you so much. All right, thank you.